You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Okay, we might get started. We're missing one of our panellists, but he is on his way. So we'll just uh, get started without him because I know there are five people here who have a lot of things to say. So, um, okay, so welcome. Welcome um, to the Sydney Environment Institute panels on the business making of climate change. Um, Welcome to colleagues and students from across the university and welcome to our guests, especially on a night such as this. I really appreciate um, that you've all made the effort to come out here. So hopefully you'll find find the evening's um, topics interesting. So my name is Tanya Fiedler and I worry about a four degree world. I'm also an accounting academic and a mother of children who might live in that world, and I'm chairing this series of talks. Before we begin the proceedings, however, um, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land in which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And so as we share our knowledge, teaching, learning, research, and practices within this university, May we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. I would also like to acknowledge the support of the Sydney Environment Institute, including its director, uh, Professor David Schlossberg, uh, as well as Eloise Fetterplace, Charlotte Owens and Liberty Lawson, all of whom have played an indispensable role in bringing this series to fruition. In particular, however, I would like to thank the tireless efforts of the Institute's Deputy Director, Michelle St. Anne, who has produced this series and supported me through multiple discussions over many months. I would also like to acknowledge my co-author, Professor Waifong Chua, with whom I have been researching the ways in which climate science is increasingly infiltrating business decision-making, as well as the generous support of the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants in that research. We're fortunate to have with us tonight an amazing panel of speakers who all understand climate change not only as a risk that threatens our life systems, but who also, and precisely because of this, understand climate change as a risk that threatens our financial systems. They are, and perhaps you can all just wave um, when I introduce you, uh, Kate McKenzie from the European Climate Foundation, Amber Johnson-Billings, Director of Climate Change and Sustainability Services at KPMG, uh, Cecile Walton, Executive Manager, Corporate Responsibility at, at the Commonwealth Bank, um, Theo Comino, Manager, Greenhouse Reporting at AGL, and we will have, shortly, uh, Sharanjit Padam, um, Head of ESG Risk at QBE. So by understanding the climate crisis through the lens of financial and economic risk, these panellists represent, along with many others, including our first panel who we heard from two weeks ago, an increasingly vocal and influential community within the financial and corporate sphere. This community recognises that the cost to jobs, growth and the economy in a three or four degree world far outweigh the costs and perhaps more importantly, the opportunities that would arise in a rapid decarbonisation of our economies toward a two degree or even a one and a half degree world. At our first panel, we heard that the work of this community led Mark Carney, Governor of the Bank of England, as well as Chair of the G20's Financial Stability Board, to announce the establishment of an industry-led task force 
on climate-related financial disclosures in December of 2015. So for those of you who weren't here two weeks ago, and for those of you who aren't familiar with the climate and finance space, I'm introducing an acronym, TCFD, um, which you'll hear a little bit of this evening. <laughs> um, we have many acronyms. Um, okay, so this task force, chaired by the American businessman Michael Bloomberg, made recommendations in 2017 that companies should include in their annual financial reports and their financial statements information pertaining to the financial risks and opportunities they face as a consequence of the climate crisis. The nature of this information relates to the transitional risks arising from changes in policy, technology and consumer preference, the physical risks arising from chronic and acute climate and weather-related events on physical assets such as property and infrastructure, as well as the legal risks increasingly faced by investors, directors of companies and public authorities when it can be shown that they have not, that they have been negligent in not taking these climate risks into account. Subsequent to the release of the TCFD recommendations, speeches were made and guidance provided in Australia by APRA, ASIC, the RBA, the Australian Accounting Standards Board and the Auditing and Assurance Standards Board. There's also been an influential legal opinion on director's duties by Noel Hutley SC and Sebastian Hartford Davis on instruction from Sarah Barker, who participated in our last panel. The guidance and advice is consistent and clear. Climate risk is, like any other financial risk, and should be treated as such. The climate crisis and the economic and financial instability it will affect on individuals, corporations, investors, markets and the global economy can therefore only be managed if information that is credible, consistent and comparable is provided to markets to enable the reallocation of capital. The business making of climate change series of talks speaks to the need for this type of information and the challenges it entails. It did so in the first panel by examining the ways in which investors are taking climate change into account, but also the challenges they face when trying to take climate change seriously in the sense that they rely on information provided to them by the entities that they invest in. We continue then in the second panel to explore this last issue by extending the discussion to those entities to look at the ways in which they are going about providing the information that investors need and some of the problems that are emerging in the provision of that information. So key amongst these problems is the need to translate reference scenarios and models developed by economists, energy analysts and climate scientists into representations of business risk. This is not an easy task. So that is, to, so to understand the financial risks arising from climate change, businesses need to develop forward-looking scenarios that look at two very different types of challenge. The first of these relates to the challenge of transitioning to a low-carbon economy, while the second relates to the challenge of surviving in a world where warming reaches two, three, or even four degrees above pre-industrial levels. So the first is the transition challenge, and the second is the physical challenge. When considering the transition challenge, businesses use reference scenarios developed by organisations such as the International Energy Agency to try and understand what the impact to their business would be, for example, if government policy required or investors demanded 
a reduction in emissions arising from that business to levels consistent with warming of three, two, or even, as per the goals of the Paris Agreement, one and a half degrees. When considering the physical challenge, businesses use climate models developed by climate scientists for organisations such as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to understand what the impact to their business would be, for example, of a Category 4 cyclone passing through northern Queensland in 2025. The problem with these climate models and reference scenarios is that they were not developed with business risk in mind. Rather, they were developed for the purpose of guiding decision-making by policymakers at the global or regional scale. As a consequence, all sorts of technical issues arise when you try and utilise the information provided in these models to assess the risks to a business. And it's these challenges that our panel here tonight will talk to. Our third and final panel to be held here on, the June, on June 19th, so in two weeks' time, which I hope everyone has registered to. Now, tonight, we don't have as many people in the audience as we did two weeks ago, but two weeks ago it was packed. So I suspect if in two weeks' time it is not raining, it will also be packed. So please do register um, and hope to see you there. So this third panel extends the discussion even further to the scientists that are working with a lot of the people that we're, we'll listen to today so that they can provide the information that the investors need around the physical risks in particular. Okay, so but before we can commence with tonight's panel, just some housekeeping information. Um, so if there's an emergency, um, you will hear two alert tones. Um, and so two beeps, yeah? Um, but if, and this tells us that something's going on in the building, but that we can wait it out for now, all right? Um, but if we start hearing something like a whoop, whoop, something like that, um, then it means we need to evacuate immediately and sort of head in that direction. And we'll see people in, you know, hard hats and helmets and things. Um, okay, ladies and men's toilets are downstairs on level one. Last time I was here, I was advised not to go there. I just visited them compared to the business, to the accounting and finance building, they're great. Um, so, yes, that's where you go if you need to go. Otherwise, feel free to hold on. Um, in terms of the format for the evening, I will shortly invite each of our speakers to introduce themselves and the work they are currently engaged in. We'll then hear from them as they discuss some of the issues I've already highlighted. I'll then open the floor to begin the Q&A for the evening, after which I'll close. So, without further ado, please welcome our panellists to this evening's discussion. So, I'm going to start off with Kate McKenzie. Um, Kate, you currently work for the European Climate Foundation, but you also have other roles. Um, you're also a fellow at the Centre for Policy Development, as well as consulting to the Stakeholder Advisory Group, so get this, everyone, Stakeholder Advisory Group of the Earth Systems and Climate Change Hub, which is a partnership of Australia's leading Earth Systems and Climate Change Research Institutions. Um, so in these roles, you've been quite instrumental um, over a number of years now in bringing to the finance sector in Australia an awareness of climate risk, while also bringing to the scientific community an awareness of the financial implications of climate change. So could you perhaps elaborate um, on some of the technical issues that arise when companies develop these transition and physical scenarios, as well as the need for these to evolve so that we have consistency and comparability um, of business reporting. 
Um, uh, yeah, so what might be uh, useful is um, if I just give a really quick overview of sort of how I got to here and how we got to here, I guess, collectively. Um, and many of us on the panel and in the room have been involved in some of this stuff. Um, so I um, began working on uh, climate risk disclosure as a kind of broad issue um, almost five years ago um, at uh, an organisation called the Climate Institute, which doesn't exist now. Um, and what I did there was um, particularly focused on um, climate change as a, as a financial risk. There was already quite a body of research um, that was, you know, being built um, dating back to early this decade, um, mostly from uh, a UK think tank called Carbon Tracker Initiative, who did some really uh, important pioneering work looking at the carbon budget, which is um, a uh, measure or an estimate of how much more carbon we can emit through human activity before we breach certain temperature limits. Um, it's a somewhat um, uh, variable number, depending on, it obviously relies on a few different assumptions, but it's backed up by you know, masses of robust science. So um, what Carbon Tracker did was overlay that with um, knowledge of all of the fossil fuel reserves that are, on, um, that are listed on the books of companies and, um, uh, and um, NOCs, the national oil companies, so the, the state-owned organisations, um, and compare that to the carbon budget and figure out what the, um, you know, how much excess uh, reserves they were relative to the carbon budget that we had. Um, so I think, yeah, some of you in the room will be super familiar with that piece of work, but if you're not, um, it's probably like a really critical piece of information to understanding the whole um, conversation that we're going to have tonight because it brought a financial risk lens and, and um, built a kind of an empirical basis for understanding how financial losses could arise from, not from climate change itself, but from our attempts to mitigate and reduce the worst um, most dire effects of climate change. Um, so when I began working at the Climate Institute nearly five years ago, I um, that there, there was already a bit of work going on in the uh, investment community, particularly in the super fund community in Australia, around um, understanding and disclosing um, how that might affect their investments, particularly as they're long-term investors. Um, what I did then was focused on the um, regulators in Australia and how this risk might actually uh, intersect with the mandates of the financial regulators like APRA and the Reserve Bank um, and, and ASIC, um, because that hadn't been, that sort of connection had not been made before at that time. Um, uh, about a year after that, um, the TCFD was announced. Um, that's the first big acronym that I'll use, but I'm gonna use two, probably. <laughs> uh, the one that, so this is the one that uh, Tanya just referred to, which is an industry-led task force um, put together under the auspices of the Financial Stability Board, um, but very much made up of industry. Um, they came out in mid-2017 with a set of, um, uh, sort of a framework on what factors companies ought to disclose, companies and asset managers, I should say, and asset owners should disclose in terms of um, recognising their climate risk. There were four parts to it, um, strategy, governance, metrics, and I'm always going to forget one risk, thank you. <laughs> um, and the idea was that every, you know, listed companies, unlisted, you know, that, that as many market actors as possible would begin disclosing this information so that those climate risks could be 
priced in um, so that um, rather than us uh, as, you know, super fund members or companies or other kinds of, um, you know, economic agents uh, having, having, you know, owning some of this, um, you know, fossil fuel assets or other assets that are exposed to fossil fuels um, and not really knowing what the quantity of that exposure was that, you know, everyone would disclose in line with TCFD and we would all know that. Um, so that's been, uh, a, that, that, those recommendations were really welcomed, I think, by, it's fair to say, by some of the, <laughs> by the sort of corporate, some of the corporate community, particularly in sort of corporate responsibility um, and the investor community in the sort of ESG or environmental social governance community. Um, and uh, there have been quite a few disclosures published. Um, there's our other panelist, hello. <laughs> um, so yeah, numerous, and, and I think everyone here has been involved in publishing these TCFD disclosures, um, which um, they'll all probably mention really interesting. Um, <laughs> so so um, what I, I guess so where we're up to now is that we're coming up for two years since that, um, since those recommendations were published. Um, we've just um, today had the first lot of, uh, oh sorry, I think the second status update from the task force on the adoption of those recommendations. Um, uh, I was able to get this hold of this early, so I'm um, sorry, none of the rest of you can probably talk about it, or maybe you also got it early. But um, yeah, it's not, not really super inspiring reading for me personally, as someone who's kind of um, fairly cognizant of the, yeah, as, as I think we all are of the dire situation that we're facing. Um, so that's disclosure, but I think what's I think what the other thing that's happened is that um, the regulators around the world have moved very very uh, decisively. I wouldn't say I'd say relatively swiftly actually, and and, and certainly decisively um, to uh, start considering and and even implementing um, ways of incorporating climate risk into um, their operations, their supervision, their frameworks. Um, so, um, and that's, you know, things like the, the APRA in particular has been really um, leading, I guess, in, in an international sense um, on that work and in implementing it. Um, so what I've been doing, what, what I've been, one of the things I've been working on is, um, as Tanya mentioned, working with the, some of the scientific community or actually a lot of the climate science community in Australia um, via the um, NEST Pub or the Earth Systems and Climate Change Hub, which is a partnership of CSIRO, Bureau of Meteorology um, and the five main climate modelling universities. Um, and a lot of that was um, kind of liaising, intermediating, I guess, between what the possibilities are of climate science in understanding the actual impacts of climate change itself um, for businesses um, and the economy um, and what, what the sort of potential was of the science and what the uh, sort of needs were of investors and companies and regulators um, and trying to, you know, get everyone together to see if they could um, just figure out a solution to these really tricky questions um, because it is uh, not that hard to run a big climate model that gives you a kind of a very high level illustration of what we're, what we can expect um, but getting more granular um, analysis and modeling is is hard and you know that obviously makes a big difference if your facilities are um, you know in a different square of the climate model grid to or, or you know you've got a 100 kilometer square grid so so it's like like Tanya said really technically challenging um, issue um, and I am currently working for an initiative um, that 
came out of the European Climate Foundation and is auspiced by them that provides, um, I guess, support, strategic support and advice to uh, almost any kind of entity working in the climate space worldwide. So that includes companies, um, investors, investor groups, academics, NGOs, um, and um, did I forget anyone? I said academics, yeah. Um, so uh, scientists and the, the sort of international scientific um, uh, fora like the IPCC. Um, so that's, it's a um, little hard to explain, but one of the things I've been working on is scenarios in the IEA, which we might talk about a bit later um, in the sure. discussion, but I feel like I've definitely talked for five minutes, so. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Kate. Thanks, Kate. Um, Amber, I'll go to you next. So um, you previously worked as Head of Sustainability and Reporting for the Minor South 32, um, and where you were responsible for authoring one of the earliest and more respected transition scenarios. Um, and you now continue that work in your capacity as Director, Climate Change and Sustainability Services at KPMG. So could you perhaps um, talk to some of the issues around the doing of transition scenarios? So what, what, is, what are some of the challenges in the translation of the reference scenarios that you go to? Yep. And what are their limitations and in terms of working with your clients and getting them over the line? Yeah. Uh, so we, um, in the current capacity at KPMG, primarily work with listed companies, so listed companies on the ASX or large multinationals. Um, and we're helping them try and understand what their climate risks and opportunities are. And to do that, as Tanya mentioned, you need to paint two pictures for them. And one of them is what we're referring to as this transition scenario, which is really a very fast decarbonisation scenario. So this is where the system needs to take out all of the emissions by about 2040, if we're to avoid more than 1.5 degrees of warming, and by 2050, if we're to avoid more than two degrees of warming. So some of the challenges that sit around that, given that we don't have that long to avoid that amount of warming, um, is building a transition scenario that is actually credible enough that you would apply it to understand what genuine risks and opportunities a business might have. And so the reason I say that is um, there's actually not a lot of data outside of the energy sector on how to decarbonise different sectors. And so something that we've spent a lot of time doing is finding different research pools that would accurately, credibly and plausibly describe a decarbonisation trajectory for different sectors. So that includes everything from the agricultural sector, uh, things like retail, uh, obviously the energy sector, infrastructure, um, basically everything that you touch needs to remove the emissions proportion that's associated with that. Um, now the problem with that is that uh, the scenarios need to be internally consistent. You can't assume certain things um, side by side. So for example, for the agricultural sector, you need to assume that it reduces its emissions quite rapidly, which relies on the assumption that uh, less people eat meat. So that has to be a necessary assumption within that scenario to be credible. But if you're talking to a company uh, that might sell meat, that's a very difficult um, scenario narrative to swallow. And so one of the other major challenges that we have is trying to explain to people that the cost of removing emissions is probably less than the physical consequences that that ag sector, that same ag sector, might have happened to them in 10, 20 years as those physical impacts increase if we do nothing. So there's a couple of challenges there. Um, one is there's, there's not enough information in the public domain, so we're left to our own devices in terms of building scenarios that are plausible and credible. 
The second major challenge that I referenced was that um, from a transition perspective, this, the time that we have left to actually avoid that degree warming is so short that for that scenario to be credible uh, is very difficult. You're basically looking at a transition that should take 40, 50, 60 years with willpower happening in 20. Um, so for business to use that scenario in any kind of credible way can be very difficult for them to swallow. Um, and then the third one is that um, difficulty with management teams explaining that even though there are those short-term costs in the transition scenario, um, they're likely to be a lot less than that, that higher physical one. Um, so they're probably the, the three major issues in terms of transition scenarios that we see, but there are many more. Okay, great. Thank you, Amber. Um, Theo, I'll go to you next. Um, because you are a manager for uh, Greenhouse Reporting at AGL. So you're an energy company. Yes. Yes. Um, so transition risks that Amber was just referring to associated with the decarbonisation of Australia's energy market present considerable challenges for AGL. Um, <laughs> yeah, so um, recently market forces, for example, um, have been requesting um, that you release a one and a half degree transition scenario. Um, so as well as provide some indication. So just wondering if you can talk to that, um, the complexities around that for you and some indication of what it means for a company like AGL to actually go in that direction. Absolutely. So um, to start off with, when you're looking at scenarios, another complexity of it is that, and particularly with the 1.5 degree scenario, is that we've got a really good idea of what the carbon budget is for the world to meet 1.5 degrees. We've got a slightly less good idea of what individual countries need to achieve. Um, obviously, you can all imagine what the differences in trading and what assumptions you need to make about developed uh, as opposed to less developed economies uh, should be doing or need to be doing or can be doing. Um, and then you need to look at the economy of that country. So considering Australia and considering about a third of Australia's emissions come from the electricity sector um, and of that, a good proportion of that is AGLs. Um, I think at last count it's about 8% of Australia's total emissions are AGLs. Um, it's difficult then to say what that 1.5 degree looks like for um, an economic sector, let alone a portion of that economic sector um, and what share of responsibility each corporation needs to take to reduce emissions in line with or to meet that carbon budget. Um, so that's a complexity. Um, layer on top of that various different uh, governmental policies attempting to achieve the outcomes of reliable, affordable and sustainable electricity. Um, and you have even greater complexity. Um, so think of that as the background um, when you consider how it must be for me to sit down at my desk and try and figure out what uh, AGL will look like in 2030 under a 1.5 degree scenario um, and how to go about modelling that. So that's the first level of complexity. Uh, we're bound by policy, we're bound by 
um, community expectations and our social license to operate. We're not only a big electricity generator, we're a big electricity retailer. And so we need to manage that as well. Um, and so these are both negatives and positives for the, for the brand. We've got a portion of, the, of our retail customer base that want us to move faster, and we're gonna have a portion of our retail customer base that see that as us ripping them off by going into expensive renewables. Um, so all of these balance, uh, all of these things need to be balanced. Um, and <laughs> that's just by way of looking at the, the overall picture. Um, so what I'm doing at the moment and the work that I'm focused on um, within AGL is looking at what current, current policy frameworks within the electricity sector will lead us to um, and what proposed or um, uh, policy frameworks might lead us to within the sector. And then overlaying on top of that uh, what a 1.5, whether, what a 1.5 degree scenario would look like in terms of does the emissions reduction from the policy scenario fit within a 1.5 degree budget or a two degree budget or a three degree budget. And then from there, looking at what that means for AGL. Does that mean AGL can continue to generate electricity from coal all the way out to 2050? Does it mean that there's a financial impact on the business? Uh, where does that financial impact fall? Um, and essentially, at what point does it become more expensive for us to deal with, to continue to operate than to, to close now, um, essentially? And yes, we're talking about coal-fired power stations here. And that's gonna be different under each of these scenarios. And the other thing you need to think about is that there are multiple ways of reaching a set carbon budget. We can all, we can move very quickly now we can move at a linear pace to zero emissions by 2040 or 2050, depending on which scenario you're looking at. We can move very slowly to 2030 and then reduce rapidly. Um, we could not do anything and then attempt to sequester all the carbon that we would need to to reach the, the carbon budget necessary to remain under 1.5 degrees of, of warming. So these are all the things that we're considering. So it, when you hear it's a 1.5 degree scenario, you need to remember there's not just one 1.5 degree scenario. The IPCC itself in its report um, showed four different average scenarios of how to reach 1.5 degrees. Um, and they're each very different from each other. So I'll leave you with that. <laughs> Thank you, Theo. Um, Cecile, I'll go to you next. Um, so as a as a bank, you are exposed to both transition and physical risks through your various business and home lending, insurance and investment portfolios. Um, I want to move though to discuss a little bit more around physical risks. So I was wondering if you could briefly introduce the audience to the work that CBA has been doing in assessing its exposure to the physical risks of climate change in particular. Um, as well as some of the issues and the complexities that have arisen in that. Sure. Um, good evening, everyone. Thank you for having me. Uh, if you are wondering about the accent, I'm Australian. 
as well as French. Um, so I'd like, before I dive in a little bit in what we've done in terms of physical analysis, as an example of how um, a corporation is tackling the challenge, I'll pick up on a few things, uh, if you don't mind. Um, uh, you, you mentioned, Kate, uh, that the TCFD was uh, broadly well received by the corporation. I think it's been great because it really um, uh, has become something that is commonly accepted uh, as uh, good practice and uh, it provides uh, a frame of reference that is consistent uh, across um, across the industries. Um, really talking about strategy, governance, risk, and targets. It's not that complicated to think about these four dimensions, but when it comes to putting words on paper and, and really doing some work that lead to those words on paper, it really is helpful. Um, another thing I'd like to pick on as well, because I don't think it's been mentioned just yet, uh, when we talk about various scenario analysis, or various scenario rather, um, in a sense, we're not talking about predicting the future or forecasting the future. We are talking about thinking of uh, what could happen in the future based on a number of assumptions. And that's why you've got a myriad of possible paths mm -hmm. to uh, 2050 if you look to uh, move to a low-carbon economy. Um, uh, and, uh, and if I start from that, um, from that uh, perspective, it really brings into uh, focus the work we did last year as we are uh, uh, in the lead up to our inaugural uh, TCFD uh, disclosures for ComBank. So we, we really engage broadly across the organization with support from uh, um, subject matter experts in the likes of Sharon Jeet <laughs> in his previous life at Deloitte as well as organizations such as Climate Risk. Um, to, um, to look at what we consider to be plausible, and you talked about accurate and plausible scenarios, so plausible um, scenarios based on the science, um, and the science brought to us by subject matter experts, but based on our read of the science as well. And uh, when it came to physical risk analysis, uh, we uh, worked from the premise, uh, for both physical and transition risk for that matter, that uh, we may want to consider three different scenarios, uh, two, two degrees and one three degrees. And to your point, Theo, um, even two degrees can take many different paths. And we looked at one which we called the uh, global coordination, so whereby uh, things are happening at scale on a two degree path. We looked at one which we called the disruptive decarbonization, meaning that nothing happens for a period of time and all of a sudden, customers and society demands action, and then you see things changing um, 10 years down the line, maybe. Um, and we did look at one which we call policy inertia, uh, meaning that we carry on business as usual and uh, um, uh, we are likely to go to a higher temperature um, on average around the world. Um, so looking at the three scenarios, we then uh, looked at what the physical impact, and by that I mean, um, physical impact, physical impact driven by uh, severe weather events, so uh, fire, uh, bushfires, floods, in, drought, things like that, as well as uh, um, really um, changes in patterns in climate, for example, higher temperatures, would mean to the business we are. And uh, we put uh, um, uh, our home loan book and our insurance book through the test. And clearly, ComBank uh, is uh, um, a large provider of home loans. So we looked at uh, um, what these different 
pass these three scenarios would mean from a physical impact standpoint, uh, and, and we looked at uh, aggregate measures um, uh, to see um, uh, that, uh, yes, indeed, in a world uh, um, uh, that is looking like three degrees, the policy inertia, the uh, physically, physi sorry, physical impacts on properties is likely to be greater than in a world of two degrees. So it sounds like obvious, uh, but going through the motions uh, of ascertaining that uh, piece of information is important. And we looked at the insurance side as well, whereby we said, okay, if they are damaged to properties as a result of climate change, well, chances are there will be increases in insurance premiums for the properties that are at risk. So these are the sort of consideration we, uh, we've been looking at, and really we are at the stage um, of analysis. So what can we draw um, insofar as insights are concerned so as to really help us inform uh, our strategic response? And uh, both from a risk standpoint, but also from an opportunity standpoint with products and services. Great. Thank you very much, Cecile. Um, Sharanjit, glad that you've joined us. Um, okay, so Sharanjit, you're currently head of ESG risk at QBE, um, as well as convener of the Climate Change Working Group um, at the Actuaries Institute of Australia. And I saw that you've recently been made a contributing author at the, for the IPCC Sixth Assessment Report, so congratulations. Um, so in these roles, you would quite clearly, um, we hope, have developed um, considerable expertise around the modelling of damages um, arising from climate and weather-related events. Um, so just listening to Cecile and Theo now, there are clearly a number of different ways in which a one and a half degree or a two degree or a three degree scenario can be approached. So there are clearly issues there around, so if you're an investor and you are trying to compare the scenarios that different corporates are using, how do you go about doing that when they're, they're using, say, a two-degree scenario, but it's one's using this type of two-degree scenario, one's, another one's using that sort of two-degree scenario. And I know um, that you've probably at QBE made certain decisions around this and, and also that you're interested in issues around comparability and consistency of reporting. So I'm just wondering if you can talk to that a bit. Sure. Uh, thanks, Tanya. And uh, apologies for arriving late. I got on the wrong train and ended up in Wallai <laughs> Creek. I was, I was hoping to arrive, actually, once I realised I wasn't going to make it in time, I was hoping to arrive after everyone had spoken, because I figured I was the last to speak so that everybody would steal my points and I had nothing left to say. Um, and so I could just say them anyway because I hadn't heard them, but um, that secret plan didn't work. No. So I'm going to have to make up actual real stuff to say. Um, but uh, so, look, I think, I think just going back to this question about how businesses are responding to investor pressure on climate change, um, I mean, we've talked a lot about disclosure, um, and, and fundamentally the disclosure is trying to say to people who invest in our companies, um, it's okay, we've got this under control, we've figured out how we're going to deal with this, um, we've looked at all the possibilities, and your money's safe with us, keep giving us, uh, keep investing in us, right? I mean, that, that, that's the bottom line of, of what, what this is about. And the problem is, uh, well, the good thing about the TCFD is that the, these standards have been, they're, they're a low bar to entry, right? They're not very prescriptive. They're not very, uh, they, they don't, they don't not try to make everything comparable and they, you don't have to do everything at once. They, they really put the barriers to entry as being as low as possible, which 
which is incredibly smart of them because I think, uh, you know, the last thing we want is standards that no one can meet and nothing gets disclosed and no decisions are made and capital doesn't go the right way. The flip side of that, of course, is what we're talking about now, which is that um, everyone's having a go, but not everybody's having a go in the same way. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to say there's uncertainty around climate change because that, that's not true. We know what climate change means. We, we have some very good scientific evidence, um, but it's at a very global scale. Um, it's, you know, it's even, even the idea of a two degrees temperature rise on average across the world actually means in places in Australia, we're going to be at three degrees, right? Um, so the idea that there, there's, a, there's a lot, this is a very complex space. Hopefully you, you take that with you as you leave. But we have to find a way that uh, we get um, uh, comparability and confidence in what we disclose. There's no point us to saying, um, and this goes back to Amber's point about, about being plausible and, and real, um, because there, there, there has been some history, um, I'm not going to say where or what, but of this stuff being just corporate greenwash, right? And believe it or not, from our point of view, we don't, have, we don't have anything to do with corporate greenwash. We, we're trying to say, because that doesn't give anybody confidence. Um, but on the other hand, if, you know, if one, one company in the industry is going to take a really severe scenario and show that their company is going to go under, how do they know that investors are going to say, well, actually, you guys are being really honest and you're doing the right thing and we get what you're saying, when someone else over there is using a scenario that's, you know, very implausible, you know, we get CCS next year, so we can just carry on burning stuff, you know. So I think in the longer term that now that we've started on TCFD, we, we have to start thinking about consistency and comparability. And, and that's very much um, uh, until we've got the science working at a very detailed uh, level that makes, you know, allows us to make decisions like um, what should we charge for premium on this house and this street um, until the scientist is there. And it is not there today, right? It, it, it has some very broad strokes. We can make strategic decisions, but we can't necessarily make operational decisions. It's the same issues that some um, that are facing in, in physical risk for everyone. Um, we need to start thinking about standards. We need to start thinking about uh, how can we come together and say, well, this is a reasonable set of assumptions for us all to use, so at least we're being compared on a, a consistent basis. Um, and I think, and that's where, what, what we're trying to do at the moment. Partly also, uh, we've been driven by the regulator, um, APRA in Australia, because um, APRA wants us to, uh, you know, APRA is itching for us to give them the information about what is climate change going to mean to our business, what are the costs of climate change. Um, but on the other hand, they don't want to get back a whole set of returns from the industry that they're all done on different bases, they're not comparable, you know, it actually doesn't help them as a regulator and it doesn't help investors as decision makers, it doesn't help us as decision makers. So in the long term, I think consistency is what we are after because that's what will build uh, confidence for our, for our investors. And we're trying to approach that. And so the way we're trying to do that, if, if I've got time to talk about a little bit about that, is to say, let's get all the climate scientists in the room um, to, to talk to our catastrophe modelers. So as insurance companies, we, we build these catastrophe models that uh, you know, we essentially are the way we price our insurance contracts. They, 
look at it, every individual property. They look at the history of cyclones, floods. They look at uh, maps and data. And they are incredibly complex models that are built by very, very smart people. Um, we have about 200 people who work on these things globally. And we spend millions each year on, on that technology and improving it because it's the core of our business. Um, they're great models. And you know we have a business that survives on the basis of those. Um, but they're not models that are designed for changing climate. They've been built on the assumption that climate doesn't change. So they, we need to get those models and we need to adapt them for climate change. And on the other hand, the climate scientists have been excellent at putting out as much research as they can about what happens to, uh, what happens to the average rainfall or what happens to wind speeds or what happens to sea level rises but they haven't done, done those at an individual house level. Um, and they, there is a huge range under the different scenarios that we talk about of those possibilities. And what they also haven't done is necessarily focused on the extremes because you know, it's not, not just a slightly more windy day that causes insurance claims, it's a cyclone that causes insurance claims, right? And if all you're doing is modeling the mean or the average of what's going on, you don't see what's happening to the extremes and, and, and what drives our business. So the, the climate models do a lot of stuff that's really good, but they don't do everything. The cat models do a lot of stuff that's really good, but they don't do everything. And we're trying to stick the two things together by getting the experts in both to discuss how we can go about doing this. Now, we're trying to be scientifically robust, but we are doing this in the context that the science isn't there yet. And we need to also think about what are the steps we need to do to develop the science so that over time we can make much better decisions around this. So that's, that's the progress that we're trying to do. Okay, thanks, Charandrit. Um, I'm just looking at the time. I'm thinking that there's not that much time for us to um, discuss. So I'm going to go to a question that I think um, that, that I'd like for you guys just to sort of play around with between you. Um, that takes us out of this sort of technical domain that we've been talking about now. Because, um, of course, the reason you're all here, the reason we're here today is because of an issue that concerns all of us and concerns society at large. Um, so we've been talking about these risks, so financial risks. We've been talking about directors' duties, et cetera, et cetera, um, and the technical issues that we have in trying to disclose this information. Um, Ultimately, the board has responsibility for signing off on whatever information um, is disclosed. So my question is, who are the people that matter in the board signing off on these? Um, so, and who, who are they making those decisions for? So for example, um, it's in the best interest of society in the longer term, um, and it may be in line with what a portion of the investment community is asking for, um, but it may also erode shareholder value over the short term um, to take uh, more serious action. So clearly, from a moral standpoint, um, we could argue that this would be the better outcome. Um, but is this what a board should be doing from a fiduciary perspective? Um, uh, I'm happy to start there because uh, essentially it's a debate around what exactly is the remit of the fiduciary duties of the board, and that's. Uh, sorry, I don't think they can hear. Oh, sorry, but I thought that. Yeah. 
just maybe holding it a bit okay. closer. Um, so essentially, it's uh, it's uh, a debate uh, around the uh, um, what constitutes fiduciary duties, uh, um, and uh, and that's a debate that's been really interesting to watch in the last, call it five to six years, in that uh, the notion of environmental, social, and governance consideration as part of the fiduciary duties of board members as a collective, so to your question, who is taking what decision at the board? Well, they are a collective, it's a board, so, so therefore they ought to stand by whatever decision they make. Um, from a fiduciary duty standpoint, uh, what uh, what it means to consider ESG, it means that they ought to inform themselves on uh, matters uh, um, uh, that used to be called externalities, but let's call them matters that are important uh, um, uh, for whichever reason. So they might be important to the customer base, they might be important to the shareholder, they might be important to society at large, and that comes back to the concept of social license to operate. Uh, so whichever reason, they ought to inform themselves uh, on the ins and outs of particular consideration, climate change uh, being one of them, and then uh, come to a decision that makes sense for the business they run in a sense. And there might be boards out there who decide to inform themselves and decide that actually climate change doesn't impact them whatsoever. That's not something that would be, you know, advised of anyone these days. But if they do do that from a fiduciary duty standpoint, as long as they inform themselves, they are free to make the decision they make. So it's more making sure that at the very least that information flows through to the board in the first place, which is very much what's happening. And that's why the likes of, you mentioned Sarah Barker earlier, um, from Minter Ellison, has driven a very good game in terms of raising the awareness of that concept. Uh, and she's been very much party to that uh, opinion, the Hutley opinion, a few years back. And that's really nailing the concept of what constitutes the fiduciary duties, the financial and the non-financial, which by definition is a misnomer as well. Okay, thank you. Sharanjit, did you want to? I wanted to get my answer in before someone else mentioned it. Um, so uh, I could kind of, this, and by the way, this is my personal views. I'm not a director at QBE. Um, I speak to them a lot, but I'm not them. And, uh, and what, I, what I'm about to say is probably not a widely held view. So, you know, the, I, you know, the, the, the context of the question or the framing of the question is that like we have a choice like you know we can either make money now or we make money later or and and, and I actually dispute that mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's the right way of looking at the problem and the right issue um, and I actually have a very financial way of explaining this so what I look at is for the insurance industry which I've worked in all my life uh, in Australia around about around now round about now um, Shareholders are paying 10 times uh, the value of our earnings. So our price to earnings ratio is 10, roughly, in the industry, right? So they're paying 10, you know, 10 times the value of what we earn each year to buy our shares. Um, so it, it seems to me reasonable that they're expecting to make money for at least 10 years out of us, right? That's, that's what our average owner or investor is, is going to do, and, and it's at least ten years because there's all discounting and wonderful financial tricks like that. So, if I'm if I'm a if I'm a director acting in the interests of my shareholders, it means I must be thinking about the value of my company to my shareholders at least ten years ahead, right? 
I, 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 it doesn't make sense to me otherwise because I'm getting very clear signal from the market that telling me that's how my shareholders looking at me. So keeping the long-term value of my company is, is actually the right thing for me to do and, and thinking about in those terms about you know, what, are, what is, for example, for an insurance company, like what are, what are the claims going to be to our company? How do we, how do we um, make sure we, have a, we are able to continue to sell insurance and protect people and provide them with financial protection from natural disasters um, and make money for our shareholders? These things don't happen on their own. They're all a system that works together. Um, you know, we need communities. Communities are where people live, where they work, um, where they have risks that we can sell things to. So I, I think we fall into traps when we start to think um, that there's only one lens to look at this. And, and the right for me is that actually all our interests are aligned. Um, even, even the governments, dare I say it, because if we can't do something to solve climate change and we end up in a situation where um, things aren't insurable anymore, then the insurance company loses. They're not selling any insurance anymore. Uh, people lose because they don't get protection anymore from, from very extreme weathers. And the government will lose because they'll end up be having to bail out people. And that means the taxpayers will lose because taxes will go up. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lose, lose, lose situation. On the other hand, if we uh, commit and we enact government policy and we have companies lining up and everyone works together, then it's a win-win-win it's a scenario. And, and I, I can't see it differently. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> so Shiranjit, I would, I would like to agree with you. Um, I, <laughs> I, so d I mean, we see this complexity a lot. If you're, so put yourself in the, um, shoes of a director who owns an oil and gas company and you have an enormous amount of reserves and the value of your company depends on burning those reserves and you have a proportion of your shareholders that are asking you to operate and manage your company in line with a 1.5 degree scenario. So that's a chunk of people who own your shares who are asking you to do that. And then you have another group of shareholders, let's say equal weight to make it more complicated, um, who 60-40, okay, all right, 60-40, yep. Um, and they are asking you, which you can probably guess, to, to not do that because obviously uh, that erodes short-term value for your company if you decide to go into managed decline and not operate in line with 1.5 degrees. So how would you see in terms of the director's fiduciary duty legally at the moment, and Kate, maybe you can correct me on this, but my understanding is they have a shorter term responsibility to the shareholders because they are supposed to protect the short term value of that share price in that period of time, even though I ethically and morally agree that obviously their responsibility should be to the broader societal group. But from a legal standpoint, do they actually have the responsibility to go into managed decline for the betterment of society and erode their shareholder value? That's Kate. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't think there's any value in me getting into kind of a legal thing because we had Sarah on the panel last time um, and uh, I would say, though, that it's not... Yeah, hard to know where to start with all of this, really. Um, it's not really, a, you know, maximising shareholder value in the short term um, at all costs. It's not as though... That's not the only question, I think, that, um, and that's not the only... Um, dilemma that that companies um, face and that board you know company directors face um, 
there are many other um, activities that companies engage in that uh, where, where there would be very low cost um, for them to change those activities in the in the near term. Um, and I think, you know, as someone who really works in the advocacy space primarily, I always look at when, when a company announces something, I look at what's what's the opportunity cost. What did they actually what did they actually decide to do and not do? Did they commission a report from a consultant uh, for a relatively trivial amount of money relative to their overall revenues for that year? Or did they make a decision, um, you know, did they, did they um, actually make a decision that they didn't have to make and that is actually meaningful? Um, so one example, because Sharon Jit mentioned Exxon, is that um, lobbying expenditure by companies is something that uh, investors and civil society have shown a lot of interest in recently. There's been some pretty astounding bits of information uncovered over the last two years about the lobbying activity that a lot of companies have undertaken in terms of supporting lobby groups and undertaking their own unilateral lobbying to um, prevent uh, climate mitigation regulations and laws coming into effect and to basically disrupt and uh, stop any um, prospect of things like carbon pricing or any other, you know, a whole host of other um, related regulations. Um, this is all very well studied. There's a, you know, there's books, there's academic papers about how this happens, there's big investigative journalism projects. Um, it's, there's not no shortage of information on how this is going on and yet we still have many companies that are um, really, really loath to even disclose their lobbying expenditure, let alone um, stop funding lobbying that is actually, you know, working to stop action on climate change. Um, so, and, you know, there's certainly a few, uh, you know, quite a few companies in Australia that we could say that of as well. Um, I'm sure, you know, no one here and I will note that AGL is no longer in the Minerals Council of Australia, um, but, you know, might be in some other organisations that could come under some scrutiny in this regard. Um, so I think the shareholder value is, it's an, you know, it's a little, it, it can be a red herring because I think it's the only, firstly, it's not the only lens through which companies act or it's not the only mechanism through which companies act. Um, you know, they have, companies have massive power and influence simply in their words and, you know, the previous CEO of AGL, for example, um, I would argue was, uh, you know, fairly effective in his messaging and speaking and being a voice for um, energy transition and for the um, a sort of an aspiration around renewable energy. Um, I know, you know, some people that I work with would, find, would, would sort of argue that is at no cost to them and, yeah, on, 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 but, you know, we also did see it was at some political cost, um, uh, unfortunately. Um, so, so the other thing I wanted to just mention is that we're in a really... I, I, I think a lot of people in industry are um, and not you guys, because you're all great, but are really struggling with the pace of change and the, um, the new information that has come to you know, that's come up for us lately. And one of the things is the 1.5 degree report from the um, IPCC, which came out in October. And 
really painted a very stark picture of how dire the um, the kind of the outlook is, even in a really, really good scenario. And I mean a really, really good scenario. Um, so Theo mentioned the, um, the four illustrative pathways that are in the summary for policymakers of that report, which I would urge you all to read. Um, some of those pathways are not plausible. The ones with vast amounts of negative emissions are not plausible and should really only be seen as an absolute last resort in the event that we cross thresholds and climate tipping points and trigger feedbacks much quickly, much more quickly than we hoped. Um, there are physical limits on how much negative emissions technology can really kind of take place. Um, second thing is, uh, you know, I, I you know, appreciate it's about business and we're talking about kind of directors and so on and directors' duties, um, but directors are people as well and they live in our society and there's a very tangible change and I appreciate that, you know, given the outcome of the federal election here, it might be, it might feel a bit far away from us in Australia right now, but there is a real shift going on in pretty much everywhere in the world around the urgency and the understanding of the urgency of this problem and that we are facing an existential threat to our society. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, I'm less worried about what, uh, I, I'm less worried about those trade-offs, I suppose, um, because we have seen some businesses make pretty courageous or, or, you know, at least potentially courageous announcements that they are and commitments that they will uh, work towards decarbonising their entire business um, within a, you know, kind of acceptable-ish time frame, I guess. And I mean acceptable in terms of acceptable <laughs> if we want to have a society where we don't lose a billion people or so, you know, later this century um, so, in a really unpleasant way. So, you know, there's, there's not many companies that are doing that, but there's a few and it's it's possible. Um, and, yeah, so directors are people. They've got to look their kids in the eye. They've got to look their, yeah. themselves in the mirror every morning. Um, and... Uh, I think it's, you know, it's okay for us to remember that and not just keep the conversation in this sort of strictly sure. narrow financial um, yeah. discussion all the time because employees, you know, this, this comes up through like hiring, you know, employee retention. There's all, there's all kinds of ways in which this um, sort of growing, I guess... So how is that filtering is through out. at AGL, Theo? <laughs> so I'll, I'll take that as a compliment-ish. Um, <laughs> Um, look, at, at AGL, I'm, again, I'm not going to talk for the directors. I'm not a director of AGL, um, although sometimes it would be nice to have that extra income. Um, sorry, Theo, if we can keep it short, because, sorry, oh, I, I just want to make sure the audience gets a bit of, bit of uh, time as well. Um, <laughs> the, uh, look, from, from the AGL perspective, where... Um, uh, the, obviously, the director's duties, we have a regulatory uh, framework that sits around that as well. Um, a very short anecdote is that I was in the office uh, the other day. I sit with finance. I am in the finance department at AGL. And I had a staff member come up to me and go, what's this thing about, about climate risk that ASIC is talking about? 
Um, what do we need to do about incorporating this into our financial statements? Um, so these these things are happening. Um, uh, Tanya mentioned in her introduction there's a whole lot of uh, regulators making speeches from the Reserve Bank down um, around climate risk. Um, we have ASIC, we have APRA, um, and for us that means that it's now suddenly on the radar. I was having a discussion today about what type of education we need to give to the board uh, on climate risk and climate change um, so that they can be informed uh, to the point where they can make that decision that we've discussed. So very short answer there, but that is essentially the way we're, we're looking at it. And Cecile at CBA? I'll just add some, comment some commentary on uh, how things have changed in the last uh, um, five years, uh, um, give or take. I've been at Combank nine years. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, in the early years, it was a lot of uh, push um, uh, um, with uh, um, myself, my team, uh, um, suggesting conversation uh, with people who may have wanted to have a conversation or not, as the case might be. Now it's very much a pool, uh, and to your point, uh, it's very much, can you just talk to me again about that yep. issue there and uh, what that means in practice? So there's definitely a lot of engagement, and to your point, okay, I think it's, uh, it's promising. So there's a long way to go, without a doubt, uh, across the board for all corporate Australia and beyond, but uh, there's definitely momentum in corporate Australia. Great, okay. All right, so I want to open the floor, open to the floor now. Um, so, and I would encourage you please to um, not be shy in asking questions. Um, so, uh, there's no such thing as a stupid question. I do have a couple of ground rules though. So, uh, the first one is um, that I ask that you please ask a question. Um, so, <laughs> um, it's okay if you make a couple of comments to sort of elaborate and give context around your question, but uh, any long-winded comments and I'll probably cut you off. Um, so third, if you could state who it is you'd like to address on the panel, who you'd like to, to respond, um, or if you're happy for any of the panelists to um, respond. And then finally, um, so I understand that some in the audience may have concerns or questions that they want to express um, surrounding relationships. Some of the organisations here may have either with the federal government or with other industry or corporate entities. Um, so, but I hope you'll understand um, where um, our panelists won't be in a position to discuss those relationships. So um, anything around a political nature or specific clients, um, yeah, is, is off the table for discussion. We sort of want to keep the discussion to uh, what we've been talking about this evening. Okay, so, and that is around the challenges of trying to incorporate climate science and these sorts of scenarios and how we translate them. Because there's a lot of complexity, but it's, it's a really interesting space. And it's a very, very rapidly evolving space where um, companies are having to move very quickly. So, um, yeah, if anyone has a question. So, we've got someone back there. Uh, so, in the election, um, we saw the argument come up a lot that Australia shouldn't act because we are merely 2% of the global emissions pie. Uh, is that, does that issue come up even more in private companies um, where it's kind of more tangible that it's going to impact on their, on their bottom line? Is there anyone in particular? 
Anyone in particular? Uh, probably Amber, I think. Um, yeah, it does come up. It often comes up um, in a sort of private, closed boardroom conversation when people are making the case for why they shouldn't have to do anything. And my um, usual response is that the way that we break down emissions from a country level is um, fairly arbitrary. So the emissions that sit in China and India and in the US are from a lot of consumption that we in Australia use. So at the moment, it looks like different countries have you know, very high or very low emissions profiles, but it really depends on the way you cut it. So Australia at the moment, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong on the exact tonnes, but Australia is about 20 tonnes of carbon per capita. Whereas if you look at somewhere like China, you're looking at about under two tonnes. So really what's fair and who is accountable for those emissions is, is a much more um, philosophical question and therefore it is still our responsibility. And the other response is we have 10 years left to do something. So it doesn't really matter if it's them or us, we all need to do something. So let's just get on with it. Where's the... Hi. Uh, in the event that a company fails to uh, manage climate risk effectively, should investors be voting against directors? It's, it's to the whole panel. So um, I have this thing called the cyber test, which says if we were talking about cyber risk, like all companies face cyber risk, what would be the answer? And why would we have a different answer to climate change as a climate risk, right? Because um, from, from my point of view, and again, this is a personal opinion, uh, not, not representing my employer, the rest of it, but um, you know, companies face risks and we have direct, and, and investors get directors on board and part of their job is managing those risks. If those directors fails in those duty, no matter what the risks are, then I think the shareholders are entitled to say you haven't done your job. Um, you know, let's, uh, you have to have, look at some of these things with clear eyes and the politics surrounding climate, climate risk has made it no longer clear. But if it was cyber risk, for example, I have many boards have uh, spilled and CEOs and management have spilled because the company has failed to manage that risk. So why would we have something different for climate? I'll add a little bit of an overlay in terms of what we've seen uh, as far as the evolution of the uh, climate space is concerned. So to your point about uh, um, the uh, um, whether we, we've got more of a stake uh, in Australia as uh, opposed to another country where there is less ton per capita and whatnot, there, is, there can be a bit of analysis paralysis. Well, I don't know. I'm going to check what they do, and then I'll do something depending on what they do. And I think we, we've passed that. So there's been some, there are a number of waves. Uh, the first one has been for corporate Australia to recognize that climate change was a risk was a, a strategic risk, was a risk that carries some Im impact on the, the financial consideration of the organization. So that, that's first, fine, I recognize there's something there. Then there is the understanding of what exactly is that risk we are talking about and what are the impacts we should consider in understanding that risk. And we are seeing the back end of that particular um, phase. And then we move to the, well, okay, now that we know, now that we've recognized there is a risk, now that we understand the nature of the risk and the ramification of the risk, what do we do to manage the risk? And that's really, to your point, uh, Dan, is following very much that number of waves. So that's how we are moving in, in a cyclical fashion, I think. Would you agree? Um, there are still climate deniers on boards in large Australian corporates. And I think with the sheer quantity of evidence in the climate science world, if those directors are not 
able to understand and see what the scientific discipline is presenting to them clearly, then yes, I think there's a case um, to ask that certain board members step down and that should be led potentially by shareholders. Um, I would just say though, as per Kate and Cecile's point, uh, we're certainly in the last five years seen an enormous shift and an awakening and a whole bunch of people waking up to see what the science says. And I think there's a lot of recalcitrant directors who are still on that cusp and just haven't yet understood the science well enough yet. Um, and it would be tricky to differentiate at the moment which director um, is a denier versus which hasn't been informed properly yet. So I'd just say there's a grey area there. Mm. Interesting. Um, reflecting on the mood of the electorate in the last federal election and taking your point that investors are people and they are voters, is um, are you noticing a difference in the pressure that institutional investors are placing on companies versus mums and dad investors and what those pressures might look like? So in terms of uh, institutional investors, to start with, um, I suppose I would say that AGL has seen a, an increase, not specifically as a result of any one particular thing, be it the election or, or policy changes, but just generally over the last probably six to nine months. Um, uh, look, and when I say that, I say that in terms of looking specifically at climate change. Um, but not just investors, groups representing investors, IGCC, market forces sort of out there pushing agendas um, and pushing that through the investor lens. So we're seeing that, definitely. Um, <clears throat> from a mum and dad perspective, I'm so, so we're seeing that increase. From a mum and dad perspective, um, I, I don't ha haven't personally seen any change uh, in the way that that is affecting AGL, and we have a lot of mum and dad investors. Um, we're like CBA and, and Telstra. There's there's a lot of them out there for us. Um, having said that, we do have those activist investors, but they tend to the ones that tend to make the loudest noise are the ones that continually send in to the CEO the, the handwritten letters saying, I know more about climate change than anyone else in the world and you're all wrong, it's not happening, what the hell do you think you're doing? Um, and <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying that, no, 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 no they're, they're not activists, they're, they're, they're more mum and dad investors that seem to think they know. So that's, that's what we see um, and we don't see particular strong organization of, of that group. Um, what we do see is that in terms of people and, and people changing the, their habits, we see that from our retail base. Um, electricity is a carbon intensive product. Uh, more and more people are knowing that, more and more people are asking us for things like solar and batteries, uh, offset products, green power. Um, and they're asking us what we're doing and some of those people are willing to pay more for it. Um, so that's where we're seeing the, the mum and dads, that's where we're seeing those people. Yeah, thanks for all the input from the panelists. Uh, a question to anyone, when do you think the equity analysts in the investment banks and the broking houses will start to include climate risk in their price forecasts and their recommendations? Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to answer that because I've got
got the mic. Um, <laughs> <sighs> so, I, I mean, so Zoe Witten from City says um, equities analysis is um, capitalism on crack. And, you know, the, the, the way that, yeah, the, the discount, discount cash flow model of and, um, assessing a company's worth. Um, uh, unfortunately, they don't tend to see it as uh, the, the, the PE ratio equating to the number of years. I mean, I guess sort of theoretically, but really they more see it, they more just discount it back to, I can't remember, it's, it's, hard, it's really hard for them to look beyond a few years though, it's my um, understanding. Um, I think they're already incorporating it in some ways that some of them don't know. Um, there's some obviously the sort of specialist ESG ones who are incorporating it. I think, sorry, just to my previous comment, we're already seeing effects of climate change on listed companies. It's not always identified as such or broken out as such, but, you know, it, it's happening. Um, I think, you know, some of the biggest insurers in Australia have been fairly kind of clear in saying that this is probably a thing that is, they've, you know, had large losses, um, due to, you know, large sort of net losses due to higher than expected catastrophe losses, which are the big, you know, variable, I, I guess, in an insurer's, um, uh, in an insurer's business. And, um, you know, maybe not quite coming out and saying it, but really, I think if you look back through some of the AGMs from insurers, that's, they're, they're kind of tacitly saying that that's as a result of climate change. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Equities analysts are not always onto things really fast. Is all I can say. You know, they've got like that's. I, I don't know if they're going to be the leaders in this. Sharanjay. Um, so um, a friend of mine's an equities analyst, and uh, it's some. You know, it's some of my best friends are equity analysts. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and. I, I guess I have, a, again, a very simplified view of the situation is an equities analyst get rated by, you know, they get rated by what their recommendations are and how those things perform over a 12-month basis, right? You're lucky if it's 12 months, right? So, you know, they don't even have all that problems that directors have, like, do I look longer than 12 months? So, um, so I, we're getting from equities and analysts exactly what we're paying, what how they're being rewarded. They just working in the system. Um, and, I, and I think, for me, that just explains 99% of, of that issue. Um, I think, though, that some things will turn. And one of the things I'm most interested in right now is what's going to happen in Europe with the, uh, the UK regulator, the PRA, effectively regulating climate change for all banks, investment companies, insurers. and explicitly requiring those companies to have capital to back climate risk, right? So this, is, this, is, this has happened in, in the UK. Comp uh, you know, I have, to do, I have to figure this out, like how much money do we need in our UK business to cover climate risk? Those kinds of things eventually get to equity analysts. Like equity analysts will look at any piece of information you give them, and when they start to see that the, wow, uh, I can hear, yeah. uh, they can start to see that, um, they can start to see this thing happening. I think that's a big turning point. And as I believe all the regulators will start to do similar things, because you don't want to be the regulator that didn't do this and you and all your 
things go down mm -hmm. while the UK regulator was doing it. There, there's no interest in those guys in, in, in being the last to move on any of this. So um, I think that's what will drive change. Um, very quick point on that. The reason that it's quite difficult is because you're not just looking at risk one way. So if you're pricing in a climate risk, you also have to look at the other side and how the customer or the asset or whatever responds. And so you're looking at adaptive capacity at the same time. And the thing that investors are struggling with the most is not that they can't price the risk if no one did anything, but what, what are people going to do in response to mitigate that risk? And so the issue is how much is the loss event if people actually adapt? And that is where um, they're struggling to price in an actual quantified number because we don't really know five tiers down in your investment chain exactly what those assets are going to do in response to the new information. So that's why it becomes tricky to price it. Okay. But you can do it. It's hard. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. Hi. Um, question is a little bit off, off the investment topic. Um, Sharon Jit um, about insurance. Um, I know that there's that section in Queensland that has now been uninsurable for homeowners who have this flood zone. Um, surely in your climate modelling, you'll discover more and more of those sort of areas which will be where people are already living. Um, moving forward, you know, what is the responsibility of the insurance companies to disclose that information to those people that are at risk? And also, you know, is there hope for those people? What, you know, what is your sort of take on that dilemma? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think that goes back to my point that, that that is not a good outcome for those people. It's not a good outcome for us and it's not a good outcome for the government. So there's a few things happening. So the Insurance Council of Australia is developing an app that will you can put your app your address in and it will tell you your risks at least for today. Um, the, we are desperately as an industry trying to work out how to do those forecasts and how to say what the risk will look like in 40 years time because no one's buying a house because they're only gonna live it for two years and then that's fine, right? So uh, I think we absolutely recognize we need to be able to do this. I'll go back to my previous point. The science isn't clear yet. If anyone who tells you it is, um, they're only telling you half the story. Um, so it, it is absolutely in our interest as an insurance company uh, and as an insurance industry to let people know about that as fast as we can in a reliable way so that we can get people to start lobbying government to start taking action about this. Um, now, what we're hoping is that government takes the action of uh, investing in adaptation and resilience. So looking at those communities that are affected, building protections for those communities, uh, stopping building on, in floodplains. Um, you know, there are, these are huge policy problems that we can't solve as business. Um, you know, we've talked a lot here about what business can do, but the reality is we, we don't see everything and we don't have responsibility for everything and, and we really need government to play a role, right? So, um, and, and I think that's the, you know, everyone talks about how great it is that business is doing stuff about climate change or some version of that. Um, but the, the reality is that we're never gonna solve the problem because these are, uh, especially when you start to look at social outcomes like you're talking about, because there is a big overlap with people who are at risk 
of um, not being insurable anymore with people who are at lower socioeconomic groups. There's tons of actuarial research that shows that. And everyone thinks it's about people with uh, mansions on the beach, right? But that's not actually true. The, the vast majority are people who are living in um, the fringes of cities where no one else wanted to live, and that's why it's cheap, because it's also in a flood zone, right? And that's where they end up, because of the way the system works. So from my point of view, um, you know, we're doing everything we can to work with the government at the moment. I've spent time in Canberra talking about how we develop data services, about how we get the right information out there, um, how we work with um, uh, helping government identify where resilience measures are needed. We're trying our best at that because I think it's going to need a, a community-wide solution. Um, we have to even resolve the com com question about who's going to pay for it. Mm. Um, and you know, th that's, when, that's when, you know, as we've seen in the election results and the misinformation about, yeah, sure, you're paying this much to save your property today, but you know, if you say, but to, to put your property up, but otherwise it's worthless in 20 years, right? And that balance in that conversation, I don't think has entered um, people's understanding of climate change. And we need that because unless that happens, we won't get the political policy making that we need behind this as well. But yes, we're doing our best as insurers and the Insurance Council of Australia has launched this project. Literally put your name, put your address in, it'll tell you your risks today. We're trying to improve it so it'll tell you your risks tomorrow as well. Great, thanks Tranjit. Last question, I'm afraid. Last one, last one. Um, hey guys, thanks for the panel, that was awesome. Um, my name is Brendan, I work for um, uh, MSCI in ESG research. And uh, one of the regular things I annoy my friends with is, is this exact question. So the level of influence that investors have on company behavior. Um, so this is, this is for you, Theo. Um, AGL, <laughs> AGL are um, you know, a big emitter, but you guys have a very ambitious target, you know, net zero, I think by 2050, or you've got um, you know, coal retirement plans and converting Liddell and, and whatnot. My, my question is, you know, how much of that decision was just an ambitious CEO compared to, say, um, you know, uh, investor pressure, institutional investor pressure? I mean, it might not be how you can, you, you know, I know you work in the finance sector, so you might not, but even just an anecdote of, you know, internally, you know, did, did you get a feel that, you know, there was investor pressure there or was it just, you know, a CEO who wants to do something good? Sure. Um, look, I can tell you that it wasn't. So our former CEO, Andy Vesey, um, came on board in... 2015, late 2014, um, and started in early 2015. I can tell you that the AGL greenhouse gas policy that was released after he became CEO was written before he became CEO. Um, so whilst it was very much, he, he supported it and that was great and that support drove um, that policy to become something more than I think it was ever intended to be when it was first written. Um, that decision to close um, our coal-fired power stations at the end of their life, to not invest in extending the life, life of those or in new coal or any other electricity generation that has high carbon intensity um, was made before, before that. And it was made um, in response to a number of things. There was a weed... At that point uh, in AGL's history, we'd just acquired two very large power stations, one being Liddell. Um, and if you can cast your minds back to that point in time, 
Um, we'd just had a change of government. Um, we'd just had the end of the CPRS, the carbon price mechanism. Um, and we were starting to see investor pressure. Um, we were definitely starting to see large-scale investors talk about divestment. Um, we had uh, the ACCR in, I want to say FY16, but it might have been FY15 uh, with a resolution to the board on climate change and climate risk. It must have been FY15 um, because releasing this policy um, and releasing a, a report that we released at that time, which we called the Carbon Constrained Future Report, which was effectively everything that TCFD has asked for before TCFD was a thing. Um, and that's because we were involved in discussions on climate risk before TCFD became a thing in Paris. Um, and we knew this, you know, so yes, short answer to your question is, is yes. But the long answer to your question is, we're a business that derives most of our revenue from a carbon intensive product. And that isn't something that we've been blind to. We've been completely, we've understood that for a long time. Climate change isn't new. Um, and it's something that we've understood and we've understood we've needed to address. Um, at the same time, we're looking at how to make money. Um, so. Okay, so on that optimistic note, Theo, thank you. <laughs> um, I'd like you uh, to ask you all to join me in uh, thanking the panel uh, this evening. Um, <laughs> and thank you to all of you for your questions. As already mentioned, I do hope very much that we'll see you again in two weeks' time um, when we speak to climate scientists and other scientists as to how they're working with businesses um, to address their needs. Um, and in the meantime, everyone should be writing to our CEOs. Is that right? In very firm language. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>